So I just woke my iPad up to a notice that said it will restart when the update is finished installing. So <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> so how are you guys doing today? Um, all right, so hopefully this is going to be a fast process. Uh, so this far, we're, today's the, the fifth week in our series on gospel culture. So this far, we've talked about honesty and graciousness and courage and forgiveness. And today, uh, hopefully, we're going to talk about freedom. And by freedom, you know, I don't mean the like 4th of July, Pledge of Allegiance, God bless America kind of freedom. Instead, we're going to be talking about our freedom from sin. Um, and like, it, it is my hope that uh, not, not because of me and what I have to say, but because of the passages and the gospel truth that we're going to work through today, that today will, will be for you and will be for me a turning point in our fight against sin. That, that God will use his word and, and his truth. And, and really, like we've, we've already sung so much of what I have to say today in these songs. Uh, because like we, we sing gospel truth to one another week in, week out. Uh, and so today, we're talking about freedom. And I want to start by telling you a story that kind of, I don't know, in some ways solidified in my mind my thinking about sin. And it came from an unexpected place. And so school just started back up. But when school was ending in May... The last day of school, we're getting ready at our house for, you know, taking the kids to school. We're hanging out. And in our bathroom upstairs, Jen and I's bathroom, I find a bug. And I've spent enough time on Reddit and seen enough bug posts that I almost immediately thought that this bug was a bed bug. Now, if you know anything about bedbugs, you know that they're pretty much the, the worst creature on the planet. <laughs> they bite you in your sleep, in this place you're supposed to be safe and can rest. They bite you and suck your blood and then use your blood to fuel their reproduction and like taking over of your house. Like the... They can store blood for a while, which means that there's, you know, there's different, uh, there, there's debate about how long, but, but some people say from like 12 to 18 months, they can go without a meal. That means they, they bite you one time and then just chill in your house for a year before they come back to get another snack. The females can store sperm in their bodies for a long time so that they can just keep laying eggs and multiplying even if you kill all the males. They are awful. And so we, we found only one or two, but like I knew enough. And then that day, of course, did more research to know even more that like this is a huge problem. We were never going to be okay with just like, oh, it's just one or two. It's not, it's not a big deal. You know, like they can, they can live over here in this corner of the bathroom and, and we'll, we'll have the rest of the house. As soon as we found out about it, like I was, I was, I, I sent messages to, to two friends who will remain nameless to protect the innocent, 
who had dealt with this problem before to say, like, what did you do? And both of them were like, don't try to deal with it yourself. <laughs> Call the professionals or burn your house down. <laughs> like, those are the options. Ultimately, we didn't have bed bugs. We had bat bugs, which are identical to bed bugs, except the hairs around their eyes are longer. You can only tell under a microscope, which meant that we had bat bugs and bats in our attic. And so <laughs> now we're at a place where, where both of those problems are mostly dealt with. Um, but it caused me to think about how similar bed bugs are to the way sin exists in our life. Only, I think, that all of us hate bed bugs more than we hate our sin. I think we're, we're less tolerant of a tiny little kind of cute bug than we are of, of that which is in us seeking to destroy us. And so today, we're going to talk about freedom from sin. John Owen says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Like, and this, this for me is where, like, sin almost equals bed bugs. Right? If you're not actively killing them, they are taking over. If we are not actively fighting, killing our sin, sin is gaining power over us. And we're going to see this as we walk through some passages. So we're going to start in Titus 2. I want to read uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this series is, is gospel culture. We're talking about how uh, the, 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 the gospel, this, this gospel doctrine we believe should be flowing outward into our lives in the way we live. For me, Titus 2, 11 and 14 is, is what ties our freedom from sin to the truth of the gospel. Romans 6 that we're going to go to later, it's going to do that too. But so here, Paul is telling us about what Jesus has, has accomplished on our behalf. He's telling us what, what the grace of God in Jesus does. First, he says it, it appeared, right? So Jesus came down. He, he showed up. The, the invisible God became visible by taking on flesh, by being born into the world as a human being. He appeared. Second, Paul says that his grace, uh, it, it brought salvation for all people. Right? We know that, that not everyone has been saved, not everyone is saved, and not everyone will be saved. But when Jesus came into the world, he changed the way in which we become people of God. Right? No longer do we have to be born into a, a particular family or a particular ethnicity. Now we have to put our faith in Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we get to be saved. Jesus, in coming down, in appearing, in coming into the world, he brought salvation for all people. Then the third and final thing that Paul says here in Titus 2 that God's grace does is that it trains us. Specifically, he says it trains us to do two things. 
Number one, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And number two, it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so let's, let's simplify this a little bit because that's kind of, kind of a mouthful, right? It trains us to renounce ungodliness. So like that's being who God doesn't want us to be. And it trains us to renounce worldly passions, which is desiring what, what God doesn't want us to desire. So the, the first thing the grace of God does is it trains us to say no to sin. The second thing is it trains us to, to say yes to God, to, to live like he calls us to live, to be self-controlled, to be upright, to live godly lives, to follow the example that Jesus has set for us. So the grace of God, it, it appeared, it came into the world, it brought salvation, and it, it's training us to say no to sin and to say yes to God. This is really important for us to see here. Up, up to this point, this passage has not told us to do anything. It's talking to us about what the grace of God does, right? We don't appear. We don't bring salvation. We don't train. The grace of God is doing that to us. It's done these things. And notice that this, this training here is present tense. So the grace of God appeared in the past. It's bringing salvation. And it is presently right now in this moment training us to say no to God and or no to sin and yes to God. What that means is that this training that the grace of God does to us, it's, it's not a, a one-time thing. It means that, that we're not past our need for more training. It means that, that we're not done, we're not perfected. This is why we still have a struggle with sin because our training to say no to it and yes to God is, is ongoing. It's, it's a process. We are in it right now. Right now in this moment, in the next moment, in, in all the moments that come after this moment, we are being trained by the grace of God to say no to sin and yes to God. And that's good news. Because what that means for us is that it means whatever my life looks like right now, whatever your life looks like right now, whatever our struggle with sin looks like right now, this tells us it's going to get better. Not because of what we're doing, but because of what the grace of God is doing to us. It is training us. The same grace that saves us is saving us, is training, is equipping, is empowering, is enabling us to get better and better at saying no to sin and yes to God. And because this is ongoing, it means that Jesus isn't going to quit until my training, until your training is complete, until our sin is, is done with forever. One day he's going to come back and our training will be done. But right now, it continues. So Paul has told us what the grace of God does. It, it, it appears, it brings salvation, it is training us to say no to sin and yes to God. Now, Paul's going to tell us the one thing that we get to do. What do we do? Or, or more accurately, what are we doing? Paul says, we're in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we do. We wait. Again, this passage is not about what we do. We are passengers. 
being carried along by the grace of God. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and finish the work for the day in which we will be made right once and for all and and when we'll need no more training. So that's what Paul says we do here. And then he goes back to talking about Jesus. What has Jesus done? Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us to accomplish two things on our behalf. The first thing, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. When you redeem something, you, you buy it out of slavery. Jesus in redeeming us, he, he bought us out of slavery. He bought us out of our slavery to all lawlessness. Notice that it doesn't say some lawlessness. It doesn't say that the majority of lawlessness. It doesn't say most lawlessness. It doesn't say the lawlessness that's really easy to say no to. It says all lawlessness. And so again, that means whatever your struggle is. Whatever my struggle is, it is something that Jesus has redeemed us from. It means we're no longer enslaved to sin. It means we've been set free, set free from all of it. Second, he gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he freed us from sin and he, he purified us so that we would be people who, who are, not who do, but who are two things. Number one, people who belong to him, who are his own possession. And number two, people who are zealous for good works. This means that Jesus, the, the son of God, the image of the invisible God, the one who, who made everything, he gave himself for us so that we would, would belong to him and so that we would desire what he desires. That's what he wants for us. That's why he came for us. So Paul here in Titus 2, he's, he's describing this, this spiritual reality that we live in because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, because of what he's doing for us, because of what he will do for us. Right? He appeared, he brought salvation for all people. He is presently training us to say no to sin and yes to God. He, he gave himself for us to free us from all sin and to make us people who belong to him and who want what he wants. This is the gospel reality that we live in. But we know that that it doesn't always feel like that. Maybe, maybe it, it, often doesn't feel like that. We, we struggle, we, we fall short, we, we give in to sin, we desire what, what we shouldn't desire, and, and we don't desire what we should. And so if, if what Paul is saying is true in Titus, why doesn't it feel like it? To answer that, we're going to go to Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 through 11. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here, at the beginning of Romans 6, Paul starts by by answering an objection that, that was raised by, by kind of Paul's opponents who thought that his gospel was, was too gracious, right? That it, that it caused people not to fight sin, that they, they would just say, well, you know, if, if this is the way the grace of God works, then we should just keep sinning so that there, there's more grace. But Paul responds, by no means, right? He's, he's using here some of the, the strongest possible language he has at his disposal to say no, Absolutely not. It it, it can never be this way. And he's going to explain why with the question. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer is we can't, right? It doesn't make any reasonable sense. If we're dead to it, why would we live in it? So he talks, he's going to explain this. He's going to show that we're we're actually dead to sin, that that is our reality. He talks about baptism in verses 3 and 4. There's like going down into the waters of baptism represents that we're, we're buried with Jesus. We're united with him in his death. And, and coming up out of the water represents that we're, we're raised with Jesus to walk in a new kind of life. And Paul explains this in verse 5. He says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he's going to flesh out this idea as he moves through the passage. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Read that verse out loud with me. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. If you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, then you are united with Jesus. That means, verse 6, your old self was crucified with him. It's dead. And it means that you have been set free from sin. All of it. This is Good news, gospel truth for us to live in. But there's more. Paul keeps going. Verse 8, if we've died with him, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So what does that mean? Well, Piper helps us out here. He explains that Jesus' death satisfied the the requirements of God, the righteousness of God. So when Paul says the death, he died, he died to sin, he's saying that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He he put sin to death. And then on the flip side, says the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus' righteous life satisfied the requirements of God. So he, to, to use Paul's language in Titus, he lived in a, you know, 
self-controlled, upright, godly life. He always said no to ungodliness and worldly passions. He lived in such a way where he always said yes to God and no to sin. Like that's who Jesus is. And Paul says that we are united with him in both his life and his death. So verse 11, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you notice what this is? This is the first thing for us to do. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So step one for us in our fight against sin is to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's here's three things we need to recognize about this consideration that we are to do. The first one is that this is a command. That means if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to do what he says, then this is one of those things we need to do. This is a, a gospel obligation for us to embrace and believe and live in gospel truth. I want to chase a bit of a rabbit trail here, and I hope that doesn't get away from us. But I think it's important for us to recognize that, that when we sin, we often talk about it in a way that, that minimizes it, right? We'll say, oh, I, I looked at something online that I shouldn't have, or I said something that I shouldn't have, or, you know, maybe, maybe I did something that I shouldn't have. And we tend to think that like, here's this sinful thing I did. That's the sin. Like I need to repent of it. And, and that's true, right? Th- those things would be wrong. Those things would be sinful acts. But I think what we need to recognize is that, that when we sin, there's often like a, a cluster or a, a cloud, or, or a chain of, of sinful thoughts, sinful emotions, sinful responses, sinful acts. Like there's a, a whole bunch bound up in that one action. And we tend to just to point to one thing and be like, yeah, I did that thing wrong. And I bring this up for two reasons. The first reason is, it's not to, to make us feel worse about ourselves. And say like, oh, thanks. You know, I thought I was doing this one thing wrong. Now you're telling me I'm doing all these things wrong. It's not to make you feel worse or me feel worse. It's for us to recognize that we are worse. See, because when I minimize my sin, I minimize how bad it is. I think I can do this more on my own. That means I think I need Jesus less. Another reason why I think it's important for us to recognize is that when we minimize our sin, we minimize what Jesus did to kill it. The reason why this rabbit trail happened right now is because when Paul tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus, what that means is that if we don't do that, this is where that link of sin starts. 
It starts with us disobeying this command in Romans 6.11. Because we're not doing what he's told us to do. We are not considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus. Because I would submit that if we actually do that, that chain won't even begin. Because we won't give into it. The second thing we need to see about this command is that the word consider here, it doesn't describe some sort of like soft, simple, fleeting kind of thinking. Like this word is is often used to describe like what happens in our brains when we do complex mathematical calculations, right? It's like you're you're squinting and your brow is furrowed, like thinking. It's it's pensive. It's it's calculating. It's 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 deep. It's profound. Because I think what often happens when we're struggling with sin is we're like, oh, I, I considered it. I, I thought about it for a millisecond and it didn't work, so I just gave in. That's not what Paul is telling us to do here when he tells us to consider. And the reason why what Paul is telling us to do here is effective at fighting sin is because of the, the principle of displacement in our thinking. So if right now I tell you, don't think about ice cream, don't think about ice cream, just stop thinking about ice cream. Most of you are going to think about ice cream. But if instead I said, hey, stop thinking about ice cream, think about donuts instead. They're better, like they have sprinkles. I mean, ice cream can have sprinkles, but a sprinkle on a donut is way better. They can have stuffing on the inside. There's lots of different kinds. Donuts are way better. Most of you, some of you are thinking, I disagree, ice cream is better. But you're still thinking about donuts also. Paul, in telling us to consider ourselves, to to deeply think about the gospel reality that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, is him saying to get sinful thinking out of your head, replace it or displace it with something else. The third thing we need to see about this consideration is that this is a present tense command. So just like before, when we were talking about how the grace of God trains us, and we were all excited about that because that's something that he does that we don't have to do, and it just just keeps happening, and it's good for us. We benefit from us. Here, Paul is saying this is something we do that keeps going. So we start fighting sin by considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus, and then we just keep doing it forever. This is an ongoing command that that we walk in. So, step one, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. Step two for fighting our sin comes in verse 12. We didn't read this one earlier. Paul says, let not therefore, or let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. So here, Paul tells us something extremely important about our sin and also gives us more ammunition in our fight against it. He's commanding us here not to let sin reign in our bodies. What this means by Paul saying, hey, don't do this thing, is he's telling us we have a choice means that in, in my fight against sin, in your fight against sin, it's not, it's not hopeless. 
We're not powerless. Why? Notice the word, therefore. Because of everything Paul has just been talking about. Like, we, we are helpless on our own. We are powerless on our own. We lose on our own. We're enslaved to sin on our own. But because of Jesus, because of everything Paul has been talking about, things are different. We're, we're, we're dead to sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. We're continually being trained to say no to it. We have a choice. We can say no. We can choose not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And that's good news. But it's also bad news. Because it places the guilt of our sin firmly, squarely on us. If we're in Jesus, it means that it is not true to say, like, I just couldn't fight it. It's not true to say that it, that it, that it overpowered me, that, that I didn't have a way out, that, that I didn't have any hope to fight it. When we sin, it's because we are failing to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And instead, what we're doing is we are giving sin permission to reign in us instead of Jesus. And don't, don't let yourself kind of wriggle out from underneath this one. Right? We, 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 we've got all kinds of excuses. Like, no, 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 I, did, I didn't have a choice because of, because of this or that or whatever. Again, making light of your sin makes light of what Jesus did to kill it. This verse also tells us that even though we're no longer enslaved to sin, that doesn't mean that sin is completely powerless. It's not. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, you know, don't let it rain in your mortal bodies. Don't, because you don't want to let it make you obey its passions. If we let sin, it can make us obey its passions. Our sin, our, our fight with it, it's, it's a zero-sum game. There's, there's one winner and one loser. We are either gaining power over our sin or it is gaining power over us. We are either, you know, killing all those bedbugs or they are taking over the house. It's one way or the other. If we give it dominion over us, it's going to gain dominion over us. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what Owen is talking about when he says, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In fact, there's this, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, which is just like him unpacking that verse. It's, it's fantastic. You should read it. But what Paul is telling us here is that, that, that sin has power over us when we let it. And it is destructive. It, it, it chokes out the life that Jesus wants to produce in us. It is actively killing us if we are not actively killing it. And I think that we don't think about sin like this. Right? We think we can just kind of keep it over in the corner and it'll stay there until we interact with it. So how do we kill sin? 
And this is what we've been talking about, right? This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6. Six, step one, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus. Step two, don't let it have any power over it. That's what he just told us in verse 12. Step three, that's verse 13. He says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So this is, is like that, that displacement principle with our thinking, but, but for our actions. Right? So if you are struggling to say no to sin, get out of this situation. Right? Go do something different. Instead of doing something bad, do something good. <laughs> right? Remember in, in Titus, Paul said that Jesus died to make us a people who are, who are zealous for good works. So instead of presenting yourself to sin to allow it to have power over you, Instead, present yourself to God. Do what he wants you to do. Right? Go, go for a run. Do the dishes. Serve the people around you. Call a friend and ask them to preach the gospel to you. Call a friend and, and encourage them. Like, read the Bible. Pray. Do something that he wants you to do instead of doing something that he doesn't want you to do. And I know that that sounds so incredibly obvious. then why don't we do it? So very often, we, we put ourselves in, in bad situations. We, we fill our head with, with bad thoughts and bad content, and we, we don't think about the truth that we're dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus. We don't uh, you know, say no to sin. We don't put ourselves in a different situation, and then we give into it, and we're like, God, how could you let that happen to me? We act as if somehow his, his power is insufficient or his grace is insufficient or, or as if the gospel in these passages we've been reading aren't actually true. But God doesn't ever let us down. Like his power doesn't ever fail. His grace is never insufficient. His gospel is always true and always good news. What happens when we sin is on us. Because we fail to consider ourselves dead to it. It's because we choose to let it reign in us and have power over us. It's because we present ourselves to it willingly for subjugation. It's because we trade the life that Jesus bought for us for, for fleeting, trivial moments of what we think will make us happy. Because we let sin kill and destroy who God wants us to be. So here's what we do. Number one, we consider gospel truth. God's grace in this moment, in every moment, is actively training you to say no to sin and yes to God. You can do those things because of his grace. Jesus died to redeem us from all lawlessness. That includes whatever it is that you're currently fighting. Jesus died to make you a person who's zealous for good works. So, so walk in them instead. You're united with Christ in his death. That means that you are free from sin and it doesn't have any power over you unless you let it. 
Consider gospel truth. Number two, don't give sin any power over you. Say no, run away, fight it, kill it. Treat it like bedbugs. Don't submit because you don't have to. And don't submit because if you do, you are letting it have increasing power over you. Be killing it or it will be killing you. Number three, instead of giving in to sin, give in to God. Do what he wants you to do. Instead of feeling bad, feel good. Instead of doing bad, do good. Instead of thinking bad, think good things, right? Dwell on what God has for you to dwell and walk in the good works he's prepared beforehand for you. Let the spirit kill your sin and enable you to walk in obedience. And the fourth thing, remember that, that all of this, any, any hope, any confidence that we have in our fight against sin is not because of us. It's not because of our power. It's because of God's grace. It's enabled by the Spirit. We absolutely cannot do this on our own. If we try, we will fail. But these passages make it clear that we are not on our own. Right? He is with us in our fight against sin. That means that all of these things aren't just possible. I would say they're probable. This is a fight that we can win. Because the power doesn't come from us, it comes from him. So let's be people who let God, his grace, the spirit, the truth of the gospel have its intended effect in us so that we walk, so that we live, so that we interact with people in such a way where we are increasingly saying no to sin and saying yes to God. Because we can. Because that's what he wants for us. Because that's the life that we're called to. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you came He made an end to all our sin. You redeemed us from all lawlessness. Your grace is, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for you to come back and to set everything right. We confess that, that way more often than we would like, we fail to do what you're training us to do. And so we pray that you would, you would send your spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, that you would, you would fix our minds on the truth that we are dead to sin, that it doesn't have any power over us unless we let it, and that we have been raised up to live a new kind of life in you, that it's possible for us to say no to sin and yes to you. We pray that your spirit 
would do a work in us that can't be explained by by discipline or human self-control or willpower. But that we would have such increasing victory over sin that people would know that it can't possibly be us. Jesus, we pray that you would free us because we are free. It's in your name we pray. Amen.